0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: I've travelled on trains in Japan and all over Europe, trips I remember with real fondness. It's made me envious of those who climbed aboard in the past, say on the old Orient Express, when it all seemed so glamorous. I've also taken the train from Vancouver to Ottawa when I was in university, and that wasn't quite as, well, it actually wasn't that great really. So when and where did Canadian passenger trains start to go the wrong way?
2: And if we had just gone more in that direction, we would be living in an alternate universe where we feasibly could have like decarbonized.
1: As we embark on a new year filled with possibility, We take a look at the past and the potential of trains as a low emission way to get around this country. And then we'll head out into the snow in search of an elusive creature. The Wolverine's sitting like five meters away in a a beam of sunlight, sitting
3: down and just looking at us like, what the hell are you guys doing here? It was just so weird, right? We'd studied the species for three years, but we'd never seen one. So we didn't know, do we have to be afraid? Is this normal?
1: Well, is it? We're gonna find out. Happy New Year and welcome to the first What on Earth for 2023. I'm Laura Lynch. Canada was created in part because of a railroad linking the country from coast to coast. The national dream, writer Pierre Burton called it. The tracks are still there, but any dreams of a national network of top-notch passenger rail travel started to die decades ago. It just isn't viable for large parts of Canada. And that is a tale of opportunities, ones missed in the past, but still there for the taking. Because if we're serious about fighting climate change, getting people out of cars and planes and back onto trains would really help. They're among the most energy-efficient ways to travel. CBC's Craig Dessen looks into the rise and fall of passenger rail in Canada, and if we might be at the beginning of a new chapter for train travel. This is where did all the trains go?
4: Looking down the aisle of seats, I've got my ticket here. Okay, 16 D. Well, excuse me. Pouvez-vous déplacer votre sac? Your your bag. It's on my seat. Thank you. We are on board train 69 from Montreal to Toronto. I suggest getting comfortable, it's a five-hour trip. Oh and the food cart should be here very soon, so best to start thinking about your order. There's two
3: layers of windows you break the first layer to go through the second one
5: and then
4: you can take a piece of clothing. I love the train. I love how you can just spread out in your space. And I love how it takes you from the heart of one downtown to another. It's civilized, in a way that driving yourself down the highway, strapped to your seat, will never be. Now, of course, in Canada, a love of traveling by train can only take you so far. Take this train. It goes from where I live in Montreal to Toronto, so between Canada's two biggest cities. In most developed countries, this train would leave every hour, with departures continuing late into the night. Here, there are only a couple trains a day. And I'm lucky. I live in what's called the Quebec City-Windsor Corridor, which is the best place to be if you want to travel by train in Canada. But many large cities have very few or even no passenger trains. And we just live with it. But here's the thing. With climate change, trains, especially once electrified, can have an important role in creating a low-emission alternative to the plane and the car. And that's already happening in Europe. Especially now, you know, I mean, cars are used less and less. That's Kai derlich, a journalist in Germany I met while on a fellowship there a couple years ago. Many young people don't even have a car anymore, you know, because they just rely on uh, public transport, and um, they just enjoy using trains. Especially now, also with the energy crisis, with the climate change, going back and forth between Berlin and Hamburg, for instance, is quite common. So you, wouldn't, you wouldn't fly? Like, you wouldn't fly to, end to Hamburg ever? No way. No way. Me, on the other hand, I would certainly dream of flying to Toronto. In fact, I do it all the time. Because sometimes it's cheaper than taking the train. That's kind of the way it is in Canada. That high-carbon-burning, inefficient transportation like the car and the train is just how we get around. And that's the way it's always been. At least, that's what I thought. Until I got COVID. (coughs) Which led to a solid week of lying in bed and scrolling through social media. Which is when I came across an old train map of Quebec and Ontario from 1948. Covered from east to west in thick black lines, decorated with tiny white circles indicating train routes, it looked like a subway map of Manhattan, except it covered two provinces and it showed their passenger train service. And you could go everywhere by train the Muskokas, the Laurentians, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, even Prince Edward Island, thanks to a train ferry. They actually put the train on a boat. If these routes existed today and we switched them from diesel power to electricity, we would have an alternative to driving and flying that requires way less energy and could even be carbon neutral. So all aboard, What on Earth listeners, we're going on a journey to uncover what happened to Canada's once glorious passenger rail service and find out if we can ever get it back.
0: When I was a child and a teenager, train travel was routine for nearly
4: everybody that could afford to travel. This is Harry Gow. He is a transport advocate at Transport Action Canada, which is an advocacy group for public transportation. He is also, and I think you'll forgive me for saying this, old enough to have ridden the rails near the end of the golden age of Canadian passenger trains as a child in the late 1930s. I went to some places that you couldn't go by train
0: now. I went, for instance, to Newfoundland uh, and rode a train partway across the island I went right across Prince Edward Island by train,
4: having gotten there from New Brunswick in a train ferry. And listening to Harry, I find out that not only could you go anywhere by train, it was also glamorous. If you were in a sleeping car, the uh, decor
0: was uh, mostly in dark, precious woods, well-varnished, kept clean by the porter. If one wanted to do a bit of reading or write a letter, one could go to the observation car. And there would always be important businessmen smoking stogies in the back of the business car watching the track as we went down the line. You go back 100 years, there was
2: electric railroads and they were running commuter lines between Hamilton and Toronto and all these kind of other sort of small towns or or even suburbs. And there was a real push to electrify that
4: infrastructure. That's Ryan Katz-Rosen. He's a University of Ottawa professor who has studied rail infrastructure and climate change. And if we had just gone
2: more in that direction, you know, we would be living in an alternate universe
4: where we feasibly could have like decarbonized. The beginning of the end started in the 1920s. when train ridership began a downward spiral. In 1920, rail passengers in Canada took the train 51 million times. And the population of Canada then was less than 9 million people. By 1925, the number of trips had dropped to 41 million. One reason, people discovered the pleasures of a road trip for the first time and fell in love with the automobile. Here's an article from The Globe in 1920 about just this. The public has deserted the railroads for the roads. It is an expression of the rediscovery
5: of the charm of road travel. There are towns 50, 80, and 100 miles away whence excellent motor cars now ply daily to the metropolis during the summer months. They give time for lunch in town, a little shopping, or a visit to a matinee and they return soon enough for late dinner. And the average charge rarely exceeds the present
4: first-class railway fares. The arrival of the car was like the advent of the internet. It was revolutionary, and the old ways were cast aside. Anthony Pearl is a professor at SFU who sat on the Via Rail board from 2008 to 2012. The
6: car culture all seemed very positive and progressive. And then you had this technology that seemed obsolete from the 19th century, sort of like the uh, stagecoach or the uh, voyageurs' canoes. They really were of a different time, and you wouldn't expect to keep them running in parallel with the uh, highways
4: and the uh, airports. Sticking with our internet analogy, the train was a lot like cable TV. You had a handful of companies playing gatekeepers they decided when and where everyone got to go. The car was freedom from the train schedule. You could just hop in and go wherever you wanted, cruising down the highway with the windows open and the stereo blasting. People loved driving. And so did businesses. Trucks meant competition for freight trains. And so did politicians. They loved the way cars created new jobs in automotive plants. By 1956, it was estimated that 29,000 Canadians worked in the automotive industry. But it goes deeper than that. The car roared into our world and installed itself at the heart of our culture in North America. Harry again. You opened up the uh, Saturday
0: Evening Post and there was an ad for a shiny red Buick. My God,
4: you know, everyone... In America and Canada would like to have a shiny red wheelie. So we had consensus. It was time to cancel the passenger train. But first, we had to build highways and roads, lots of them. And they're not cheap. The Canadian government invested billions of dollars into road infrastructure. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, in 1966, the Canadian taxpayer spent $4.5 billion on roads in a single year. Adjusted for inflation, that is $39.3 billion today. And it's a similar story for the airplane. The federal government saw the obvious potential for airplanes in a country as large as Canada and began to invest in building a state-of-the-art airport network. By the 1960s, Canada had world-class highways and air travel. So where did that leave the train?
5: Passenger train service in Canada is
4: doomed. The system is being
5: phased out in the interests of air transport. The
4: government was giving subsidies to rail companies to keep their money-losing passenger routes going.
0: The railway unions have charged that Canadian Pacific is deliberately downgrading its passenger service so that it can collect more money in subsidies from the Canadian
4: taxpayer. Passenger levels kept falling into the 1970s. The train companies wanted out of passenger rail. But it wasn't all doom and gloom. Here's Ryan Katz-Rosen from the University of Ottawa. We have this really strange
2: experience in Canada where we were one of the first countries to actually have a high-speed train, but we never had a high-speed rail system. We
4: never were able to use it at its full capacity. It ran in Canada from the 1960s into the early 80s. It took three hours and 59 minutes to go from Toronto to Montreal. That's more than an hour faster than it takes today on Via, and it was running 50 years ago. But it had trouble reaching its top speed because it shared tracks with freight trains, and it had to slow down at railway crossings. It was also plagued with technical problems. So the train was phased out. The once-familiar
5: call all aboard has been disappearing with the decline of rail travel. On Monday,
4: Otto Lang, the Minister of Transport, announced a new plan for passenger train service called Via Rail Canada. The plan calls for gradual consolidation... In 1977, the government created Via Rail, a crown corporation that would deliver passenger rail in Canada. But from the very beginning, it faced problems. Many of the same ones it still faces today. Its biggest, by far, is that Via does not own most of the tracks it runs on. According to Via, their trains are often late because they are using the same tracks as freight trains who have the right of way over passenger trains. Via says this impacts their on-time performance and limits how many trains they can run in a day. And Via's on-time performance was only 72% in 2021. And operating this way is also costly to Via. Here's Anthony Pearl again, He used to sit on the VIA board. Let's just say that it's a monopoly pricing situation. VIA rail
6: pays for the use of the tracks that CN owns. And CN will correctly point out that they make money running freight trains over those tracks. And they charge VIA a lot of money for the opportunity cost of not being able to run as much freight on their tracks because those passenger trains take up the
4: time and the space. Next comes the political problem. Here is Ryan again.
2: There's a long history of VIA being at the whims of the government of the day, right? It's a crown corporation, so it's funded by the federal government. And the federal government, you know, has sometimes been very supportive of of passenger rail, and then another government shows
4: up and the whole plan gets kiboshed. VIA also faced headwinds from its main competitors. Here's what As It Happens uncovered in 1979.
5: Somebody in the Federal Ministry of Transport doesn't like passenger trains. In two documents prepared for the new Minister of Transport, officials recommend that train fares be kept higher than bus fares to appease the bus industry.
6: Less Benjamin.
4: Austerity dealt the final blow. From the early 80s to the mid-90s, both Liberal and Conservative governments repeatedly slashed VIA's budget as part of the government-wide effort to bring down the ballooning federal deficit. The impact on rail service was impossible to miss.
7: First, a look at the Maritimes. This is VIA's route map now. By next January, service to such cities as Yarmouth, Sydney and Edmonston will be a thing of the past. In central Canada, Quebec keeps most of its service. Meanwhile, Europe was
4: building up its high-speed intercity rail network throughout the 80s and 90s. Shoshana Sachs is a Canadian research chair in sustainable infrastructure at the University of Toronto.
8: So in Canada, we had a mythology that the future was going to be automobile-oriented, that in the future everyone would drive and that that was the version of a good life. In Europe, they had a different imagination, a different mythology about their future, and it was more related to rail. And for both places, these became self-fulfilling prophecies. We imagined a future based around cars. They imagined a future more based around trains. And we lived up to our mythologies in both instances. And now, you know, 50, 60, 70 years have gone by. We can see uh, who made the better choice. And spoiler alert, it wasn't us.
4: By the turn of the century, some Canadian political leaders were having second thoughts about turning away from train travel. David Collinet was the federal transport minister from 1997 to 2003. He saw the potential for passenger rail in Canada. But he said it wasn't easy convincing his cabinet colleagues to put money back into VIA. There was an an attitude, like, why should the government pay for that?
0: Everybody has their hands out and says, okay, if you, you want to spend all that money on VIA, Uh, Well, what about us? And you've had a a mindset within the bureaucracy to say, oh, well,
4: you know, uh, people will drive and uh, people will fly. When he was the minister, he was able to get hundreds of millions of dollars invested into VIA. But it was to fix the basics, not building a serious competitor to the car or the airplane. It left passenger rail service in Canada in a tenuous spot. So Canada's once extensive rail network was outdone by the car, the plane, and budget cuts. But now we're in a climate crisis. Here's Anthony Pearl again. Electric cars with batteries can do that
6: also, but there are huge limits on the cost and the efficiency of lugging around all those batteries. Whereas a train needs just a wire or another rail with the, the current flowing through it and can get over 80% efficiency, energy efficiency of directly from the, the source.
4: Plus, if trains were electrified, they would have an energy advantage that no other mode of transportation has. Except for ships, which
6: uh, can also be wind-powered, uh, rail is the mode of transportation that has shown itself to be the most energy-diverse and adaptive mode of mobility. Trains started out using wood. They would literally cut down trees and throw them in the uh, boilers. Then they switched to coal. Then they switched to oil. And uh, now, at least the latest state-of-the-art trains are able to use uh, electricity,
4: which can come from many renewable sources. Via is also getting the largest investment in a generation, including new locomotives that burn less diesel and can be electrified. Plus, VIA just got new modern train cars, but there's still no beverage or restaurant cars. There's also a plan for what it calls high-frequency rail. VIA would have its own tracks between Quebec City and Toronto. A trip between Ottawa and Toronto could take 3 hours and 15 minutes, according to VIA, instead of the 4 hours and 45 minutes it can take today. There's also a plan to electrify the majority of these tracks. The future of rail in Canada remains an open question. Nationally, we're seeing baby step improvements at best. And the chances of ever replicating that old 1948 map of Quebec and Ontario I found, with its overlapping spiderwebs of rail lines stretching out in every direction, that's unlikely. Rail service into rural Canada probably isn't improving much either. But there are signs of hope, especially in and around the country's largest cities where there's been a significant investment in light rail. It won't take you across the country, but it will get you in and out of the city. And out of your car. One of the brightest spots? C'est ici à Montréal.
5: So we're in the epicenter of the REM project, corner of St. Catherine and McGill College, right next to two construction sites from our perspective. So one of retrofitting the five. That's
4: Harout an executive with the organization Developing the REM. An enormous light rail project under construction in Montreal right now that will run on electricity. The RIM is
5: one of the biggest infrastructure projects in the world. So it's 67 kilometers of new uh, light rail, uh, 26 stations, uh, fully automated, and that will service many, many communities. So around 11 cities, eight boroughs of the city of Montreal and that will ultimately carry about 170,000 passengers a day when it's fully operational. In only four years' time, we have already a fully functional segment of the project that's 16.6 kilometres long with five
4: stations, and that will be operational next spring. 67 kilometres of rail lines, even light rail, is a lot for Canada, especially to have parts of it up and running so quickly. And the Quebec government has come up with a novel way to fund the construction, Harut works for a subsidiary of the Caisse de Dépôt et placement du Québec. The province's public pension fund has jumped into the train game. So we
5: call it public-public because public the Caisse is the funds of most Quebecers. So we have close to 6 million depositors who are the pensioners of Quebec. And basically what the CAS is doing is, is building a system. And every time a transit user takes that system... Part of the revenues will go into financing uh, the retirees of Quebec. They're also
4: reusing rail from the glory days of trains. The REM trains will travel under Mount Royal in a train tunnel built in 1918 by the Canadian Northern Railway. Harut is also a lifelong fan, like me, of rail. And he hopes that the REM could be part of its renaissance. The historical aspect of uh, rail development
5: fascinates me as individually. The the shift from one technology, if I may, to the other was done because of speed. So, steamships were kind of uh, set aside because rail was faster than steamships. And at one point, highways came along and cars offered a faster service that was a more comfortable one because you're in your own car. And rail was basically gradually put aside. But what we're seeing right now is that rail has an enormous potential, not because of only the speed component, but because our societies have a common goal of reducing greenhouse gases.
4: Well, I'm pulling into the station. I can see the skyline of Toronto out my window. Hearing about the REM and what is going on with high-frequency rail in Quebec and Ontario, it sounds like this might be the end of rail's decline in Canada. And the start of a new chapter. It's been great riding with you, and hopefully in the future, I'll run into you in the club car. For What on Earth, I'm Craig Dessen in Montreal.
1: Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing any jazz music on the train, but thank you, Craig. And thanks as well to John Chipman with CBC's Audio Documentary Unit for that story. I don't want to go on and on about all of my own experiences with traveling by rail, but I do have to say the trains in Japan were phenomenally good. They were on time. They were so fast. They were so quiet. Traveling up and down that country was just a marvel. And to think of all that engineering being built in a land where we know there are a lot of earthquakes just makes me marvel even more at what they were able to do to make rail so affordable, so efficient, and such a wonderful experience for the people who live there. It'll be so interesting to see if something more can be done in this country. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon
3: People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives,
1: a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. We're in the depths of winter, so what better time to strap on the snowshoes and revisit a story we brought you last year. It's about a superhero named Wolverine. Not the cartoon character, and sadly for me, not Hugh Jackman. It's the real wild animal. And our critter-loving producer, Molly Siegel, who loves the word critter, brought us the story last spring. Here is a reprise of our conversation. Hi, Molly.
8: Hey, Laura. Um, So I wanted to ask you, since you spend a lot of time outside, um, have you ever met Hugh Jackman? (laughs) Oh, sorry. I mean, have you ever seen a wild wolverine?
1: Uh, uh, No to the first question, and I'm afraid no to the second one as well. I don't think that, that wolverines in any form actually exist around where I live. Have you seen either one of those creatures?
8: Uh, no to Hugh Jackman, other than on the big screen, uh, and I have. Well, okay, so I've maybe kind of been close to a Wolverine. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time outdoors, and I really love wild animals, um, and I know a little bit about identifying them. So I'm if I see a marmot out in the wild, I'm I'm not one of those people who calls the park warden to tell them I saw a black bear. Um, And trust me, that's a thing. Uh, And I can tell a coyote from a wolf, but a a, a wolverine. Now, that one is elusive. But in January, I found uh, tracks. I was out snowshoeing with some friends, and we saw these really distinctive tracks that turned out to be wolverine tracks. Now, I met up with a scientist named Miriam Barreto, and she has been a lot closer than me.
3: How should I describe a wolverine? It's about the size of a mid-sized dog. And while it has really long legs, they are kind of, it kind of looks like it's crouching down. So it looks kind of long with short, stocky legs. It's a dark animal, looks like a little bear without a tail. And they have a cute, round face with a pretty impressive jaw and teeth.
1: Cute round face, could be in the eye of the beholder, I think. Impressive jaw and teeth too, but she still does find them cute?
8: Yeah, I mean, she really loves wolverines. After all, they are the star of her PhD research. Um, And back in February, I got out my snowshoes and I met up with her and and we went out into the woods Um, and I will take you there out into the field later this half hour. Uh, First, just a little note about Wolverines. They are usually found in places that are snowy for many months of the year. So think tundra, mountains, boreal forest. Um, Of course, where and when it snows or doesn't is changing as the world warms.
1: Yeah, we know all about that. And we know that that change is sort of locked into our future.
8: Yeah, yeah, it is. And that's why scientists are looking closely at these regions, like uh, the area near Golden in southeastern British Columbia. They call them climate refugia. What is a climate refugia?
9: It's a place where you go for safety. I mean, that is the definition of refugia.
8: That's Greg Jutzig. Biologists like him use the term refugia to describe areas where climate change is happening more slowly. These are safe havens that may shield plants and animals from some impacts of global warming. He says the idea of refugia goes back a long time, tens of thousands of years.
9: During the last glaciation, it was the opposite situation. British Columbia was overridden by ice.
8: But some areas, like Haida Gwaii and the southern tips of British Columbia, stayed warmer. And species took refuge there. Black bears and song sparrows. There were fish, including the three-spined stickleback, and also lodgepole pine trees.
9: There were areas where species did persist, and once the glaciers withdrew, then they reoccupied British Columbia. And it's the same concept in terms of climate change refugia.
8: This is why scientists even started looking for cold refugia in the first place, because research has shown warm ones existed. Yutzig looked for these areas that will stay both cool and wet as BC gets hotter and drier. What he found is a place that won't heat up as quickly, even as the world continues to warm from all of the fossil fuels we've burned.
9: Okay, the climate refuge that I've uh, identified for southeastern British Columbia is, is an area that basically fits in a triangle between Revelstoke, Golden, and Mount Robson—a
8: tiny wedge tucked into the Southern Rockies that will have what I think of as Goldilocks conditions. Most of the mountains in southeastern BC aren't tall enough, and most other places are too dry and too hot. But here, when storms come in from the Pacific coast, things are just right.
9: But these mountains are high enough that higher elevations stay cool, even with climate change. And therefore, they continue to get a significant amount of that precipitation as snow.
8: Snow that many species need. And Yutzig says these ecosystems, inland temperate rainforest, extended hundreds of kilometers south into Idaho and Montana.
9: And I think we're going to see it uh, retract up into uh, uh, southern British Columbia. And potentially all those species, if, if climate change plays out in the worst scenario, the only place they're going to be left in Western Canada will be in these refuges. Yeah.
8: But these places are more like a lifeboat than a permanent safe harbor.
9: These areas are last-ditch efforts. They're not going to resolve anything. The only thing that's going to resolve these issues is stopping emitting carbon and leaving fossil fuels in the ground. Approving new pipelines, approving new gas operations, uh, be they LNG or offshore drilling, is absolute folly.
8: These last-ditch efforts are crucial for the survival of many wild animals.
9: The iconic species that we look at in British Columbia, most of them are tied to these cool, wet environments, be they grizzly bears, mountain caribou, even deer and elk to some extent, um, and certainly wolverines, is that assuming that we will do something about reducing our carbon, this is a place these things will persist such that eventually, if we can restore a climate over the coming centuries, they can then redisperse from here.
8: So, Laura, you heard Greg Yutzig mention wolverines. Miriam Barreto, who I mentioned to you earlier, she's zooming in specifically on this one species in that climate refugia that Yutzig
1: identified. And so what what is she trying to find out? Good question. So if I could answer
3: one question with my research, it would be how many female wolverines are there that are reproductive and where are they and where are they not?
8: Reproduction is one of the ways biologists can tell if a species is doing well. So there's some animals that are really good at having babies. So wolves are one of those animals. They have big litters. They have them often. They're very successful. Wolverines, however, uh, maybe only have one or two that survive in a year, and they usually don't have them every year. So having enough food and enough habitat really is so crucial to making that happen. And that's really what's at the heart of what Barreto is working on.
1: And you got to go out in the field with her. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and I'm excited to hear what you found out. Thanks, Laura. West of
8: Golden BC, Miriam Barreto and I put on our snowshoes. We clamber over a giant snowbank on the side of a highway and into the woods.
3: Yeah, about 600 meters. Yeah, it's probably still half an hour of walking because it also goes up 20 minutes, 200 meters.
8: We make our way uphill.
3: It's going to feel quite far.
8: I'm hopeful we'll spot a wolverine.
3: Yeah, we can be a little quiet the last couple hundred meters. I mean, there might be something in the forest, right? Keep your eyes out.
8: We follow a creek bed as our guide leading us to one of Barreto's research
3: sites. Yeah, sometimes I wish I could could hang out with them, but they don't really want that, (laughs) right?
8: (laughs) (laughs) That rejection hasn't deterred her. Usually, though, it goes like this.
3: They just take one look at you and they're gone, so clearly they don't want to have too much to do with us.
8: She uses hidden cameras to get a glimpse into their lives. And for three years, videos and photos were what she had. But then...
3: The first time I saw a wolverine, the wolverine actually came to check us out. Suddenly I heard this, like, noise. And I looked over, and there's this wolverine coming to us, towards us. And she, like, scampers over, sits down in a piece of sunlight um, on the snow. It was in Banff National Park somewhere. The wolverine's sitting, like, five meters away, in a a beam of sunlight, sitting down and just looking at us, like, what the hell are you guys doing here? It was just so weird, right? We'd studied the species for three years, but we'd never seen one, so we didn't know do we have to be afraid? Is this normal?
8: Nope, not the norm. Usually all she has are those stealthily recorded videos and photos that show determined wolverines eating at the bait. And today, we're checking in on some of those hidden cameras.
3: Yeah, let's go around here. It's a big hemlock tree here. These trees probably never got locked here. And then we go up. That steep hill here.
8: While some of Barreto's study area includes parks, it also includes places people have changed and that we use, whether from logging, building our highways, or even things like backcountry skiing.
3: At what point are people on the landscape, whether this is recreation, um, whether it's um, industry, at what point is there too much of us that even if there's enough food, they're not going to stick around? So we're trying to answer the human side of the female question, because we already know what kind of resources they need.
8: What can female wolverines in this area tolerate while still being healthy enough to have their young, their kids, and to raise them? This climate refugia predicted to stay cooler and with more snow than other areas.
3: This seemed like a logical place to study them, because if we can keep the population strong here, or if we can improve it, then we also know that their habitat's actually going to stick around. So that was important to me, that I'm not studying them in a place where in 50 years their habitat disappears anyway. So I found that really motivating to study them here and to try to make sure that this particular population does well.
8: At last, we reached the site.
3: Yeah, if you come here, you can see it. It's right ahead. And there's still some... Some bone from last year hanging there.
8: Bone from last year's bait, a beaver skull. It's hanging from a wire between two trees. Below it, a wooden plank called a run pole is affixed to a tree, and it lets the wolverines scamper up the tree out along the run pole, sort of stand up and grab the bait. I
3: mean, this bait looks pretty gross. Nobody's gonna eat it anymore.
8: Fortunately, Barreto has come here prepared. She pulls a cow femur out of her backpack. Fresh bait. I'm a
3: vegetarian too.
8: (laughs) You say this as you're putting up this giant femur.
3: (laughs) These are the things I don't tell my neighbours.
8: Joking aside, Barreto uses this fresh bait to lure more wolverines onto the run pool, which means more photos to help answer her questions. Is the female pregnant? Has she just had kids? and it lets her identify individual wolverines by the white markings on their chests.
10: It actually took two years to come up with the idea of what would make the wolverine go up, position itself exactly in the right place, and get that chest pattern.
8: A scientist named Audrey McGowan came up with this contraption. She got her start studying wild wolverines in Alaska in the late 1970s, more than 40 years of research later, there are still things that aren't clear.
10: Well, I, th- I think the story around wolverines is a lot more complicated than than what we realized.
8: Climate change is just part of the picture.
7: So climate change and landscape change work in combination to shrink the the world available to wolverines, essentially.
8: Jason Fisher runs a lab in Victoria. He looks at how the ways people change the land, things like oil and gas exploration, forestry, or replacing forests with roads and developments, how all those things affect wildlife. Research in some of Canada's Rocky Mountain National Parks protected areas shows that even on those landscapes where there's less disruption, there's a trend of wolverines declining.
7: And so that suggests that the signal of climate change is very real uh, and that life is being made more difficult for wolverines, uh, whether that's just the loss of snow or it's the loss of available food resources or probably a combination of both. Um, But they're still doing much better in those undeveloped landscapes than in neighboring adjacent developed landscapes where wolverines are taking a massive hit. So if we use that as some indication Climate change is a chronic, persistent threat, but landscape change is this much stronger, very acute threat that we have to deal with right now if we're gonna conserve wolverine populations.
8: Whether in Canada, the United States, China, or Sweden, living out on the tundra, in the boreal forest, mountains, or temperate rainforests, wolverines mostly have something in common. More often than not, they live in places that have snow for many months of the year.
3: Yeah, so, wolverines and snow kind of go together. And in across the world, we mostly find wolverines in places where there's spring, where it's just quite a good spring snowpack. And there's probably a lot of different reasons why they seem to have this strong relationship with snow. They
8: generally build dens in or under snow. And snow also acts as a refrigerator where they can stash and protect their scavenged food.
3: But the only way that that food stays safe is if the territory is defended. So that's the kind of theory that the females will defend a big enough territory so they can have enough resources to raise young. And so they can stash food strategically in cold places. But for that, they have to spend a lot of energy to defend it. Because otherwise, somebody else will just come and eat it.
8: It takes a lot to get a female wolverine to leave her territory, her home.
3: They're not gonna recolonize areas if they don't have a reason to go. So what we really need is a very strong and big enough source population where there's enough wolverines that the young females have a reason to leave because there's too many here, so they have to go elsewhere.
8: For that to materialize, this refugia would have to be protected in a way that can keep wolverines healthy. But even with populations intact, if those are spread out, they have to be able to get from point A to point B. Take, for example, in the United States, where Jason Fisher says there are clusters of wolverines facing challenges.
7: Um, which means that wolverines have to get from snowy mountain patch to snowy mountain patch, crossing valley bottoms that are heavily developed, that are covered in highways. And those snowy patches are just going to get smaller and farther apart with climate change over the next century.
8: Fisher says that's why... Managing
7: the landscape for climate change, making sure that there's still connectivity, that we build overpasses over highways, that we create green space corridors among mountains, is going to be absolutely vital...
8: Still, Audrey McGowan says not all wolverines approach barriers with the same gusto. Whether a highway or even a river.
10: Each wolverine has such a different personality. You get some really bold wolverines that are willing to handle challenges and others that that avoid challenges. And so you have to get the right individual, too.
8: Right individual, right area. But what's at stake if we can't make it work for them? Jason Fisher says wolverines, like all wildlife, have their place in an intricate system.
7: You know, it's like a game of Jenga, that if you pull one piece out from the bottom, you might be okay. If you pull another one out, that whole tower comes down. We see this time and again with the loss of species and systems.
8: In the climate refugia where Miriam Barreto is working, some of it falls into protected areas... But some of it doesn't. And thinking about it all sometimes wears on her.
3: It's just so hard to stay optimistic. <laughs> sometimes I wish I, I wasn't also studying human impact on things because it's, it's sometimes a lot to take. I think it's really easy to be pessimistic and sarcastic and think, well, we destroyed things, it's all too late. I don't believe that. I think especially this region here, there's so much still here. And there's a lot of people who really value the area for what it is, for the rainforests, for the glaciers, for for the wildlife, for the excellent recreational opportunities, also for the forestry, right? There's so much that this region can give us. It's not that everything's gone. A lot of people are really keen on on, on preserving what's still left. But for that, we need to know what the issues are. We need to know which things we we need to stop doing and which things really aren't that big of a problem right? So
8: Laura ultimately the way to prevent the worst impacts of climate change we hear this a lot stop burning fossil fuels. We also know for wolverines that there's a lot of other sort of limits to development and other things that will keep many of them safer in some places but we are facing a future where we're already locked into more warming Audrey McGowan says that there's actually a lot we don't know about how wolverines will respond to that.
1: What do you mean by that?
8: Well, she told me this story that really, really stuck with me. It was from when she was studying captive wolverines in Oregon. Now usually on a hot afternoon, she would see the captive wolverines just, you know, napping their way through the heat. But one day, McGowan noticed a male wolverine do something surprising.
10: I measured the temperature that day. It was 86 degrees in the shade, and some of the places outside in the sun on logs were over 110. And this male decided he was going to take a bone and run around the compound over and over again, transferring this bone in 86-degree weather in the sun, and he would stop go to the pond, drop his bone, jump in the pond, swim around a couple of circles, come out, shake off, grab his bone, and run again. And he did it for hours. Okay,
1: that kind of sounds like what I would do on a hot day. Pool, jump in, cool off, get out, dry off. <laughs>
8: I know, I know when I heard this, when I heard her say this, I thought, wow, that's kind of what like public health advice is, right? Stay in the shade, take a swim, or dunk your head in the
1: water when you're out on a hike. But this is this uh, at the same time, we're only talking here about one Wolverine doing this.
8: Yes, absolutely. This is not like a pattern of observed behavior of Wolverines in the wild. Um but what McGowan is getting at here is that, okay, if we stabilize the climate, some things may still be lost, right? But what she's saying is that there is still some hope in what we don't know. That maybe there's some individual wolverines that will change their behavior. Adapt, like that wolverine did on a hot day.
10: We should keep in mind not only temperature, but ways wolverines can avoid overheating, which includes being able to have access to water and to shade and to nighttime temperatures that drop low enough that they can travel at night if they have to, if they don't have water or shade available. That was really a new thing to me. Usually the wolverines in captivity would go and take naps in the middle of the day on hot days, under logs or under rocks or whatever. Uh, But this male decided he was interested in transporting a bone somewhere in his imagination, and he kept it up for hours.
1: He's an inspiration. He's a little superhero, and Molly, you have succeeded in making me actually want to meet a wolverine more than Hugh Jackman. So I think mission accomplished. Thank you so much for this.
8: Oh, thank you, Laura.
1: Well, since that story first aired in April, there's been an update on Miriam Berueto's work, and Molly Siegel is back to tell us more. Hey, Molly, Happy New Year.
8: Hi, Laura. Happy New Year. What's the news? Well, since I met... Mariam Barreto in the field, she has published the first set of results from her PhD. So these results are from a portion of the larger study area. And specifically, this is looking at a chunk of wolverine habitat in and around three national parks, Banff National Park in Alberta, and then across the border in BC, it's Yoho and Kootenai National Parks. She has remote cameras set up throughout this area, and so these cameras are also capturing people who are in the backcountry. And her team observed something interesting, that when people were passing through the area, this also coincided with whether or not wolverines would then show up after on those same cameras. So they actually noticed that overall, wolverines were less likely to be caught on those cameras after people showed up. So these were people that were heading into the backcountry in the spring and the winter to ski, snowshoe and hike.
1: All right. So it's not really about being camera shy. It's more about being really sensitive to humans.
8: Yeah, it it seems that way. And from 2011 to 2020, Berweto found that the number of wolverines in that area has actually declined by 40%. That is a
1: huge drop. What's causing it?
8: It's likely a number of things that are causing it, but Barueto says that it's likely partially due to the wolverine harvest in BC and Alberta in the areas that are just outside of the national parks. It's legal to hunt wolverines there. So if a wolverine's just living its life, it doesn't know that there's a park border. Its home stretches such a big area that it's in and out of these national parks. However, Barreto says that previous research she and her colleagues conducted actually resulted in some change. The Kootenai region of B.C. put an end to its wolverine harvest in 2020. And she says she hopes that the province of Alberta will also revisit its harvest policies as well.
1: And well, what did the Alberta government say about that?
8: I reached out to their Department of Environment and Protected Areas, and someone did get back to me by email. Uh, A spokesperson described the harvest limits as restrictive, uh, adding that an average of less than one animal annually is harvested in that area near Banff National Park. The email went on to say that the Ministry of Environment and Protected Areas has also started to review, quote, New information and data, end quote, about wolverines to see if it's time to evaluate the status of the species. So it's it's a little vague. I'm not really sure what movement is happening there, but maybe something to watch.
1: Sounds like something might be moving. So what happens then? What happens for wolverines next in this climate safe haven? If it's not actually that safe.
8: Yeah, I know. It kind of sounds like bad news, but it's not It's not necessarily like it has to stay that way, Barreto says. It actually leaves her and her colleagues with an opportunity, she says, to turn things around with this knowledge. As for other parts of her study area, she's still crunching the numbers on that. So we'll have to wait and see. But you'll come
1: back and tell us again, right? I sure hope so. I really <laughs> want to know what happens to Wolverine after you've made me such a big fan. Thanks, Molly. Thank you, Laura. So we just heard one update coming up on next week's show. We'll be hearing a few more. Sebastian Gaudoin is the Canadian Research Chair in Human Rights, Health and the Environment at McGill. And last time we spoke to him, he urged Canada and the world to do one thing. Include people with disabilities in climate policies. And he's back with us in our next episode to talk about what's happened since then. And here's a taste. He's now met with the Minister of Disability Inclusion and the Minister of Environment and Climate Change.
4: Well, so the last time we spoke, Minister Qualtra reached out to me and set up a meeting with myself and uh, Minister Guy and and her and people on my team. And so we briefed them on what needed to be done to make Canada, or at least to start making Canada's climate policy disability inclusive.
1: And so we'll hear more from Sébastien Chaudoin next week. He will update us on new research, upcoming projects, and what he wants to see next in Canada. And that is all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio. The What on Earth team is associate producers Danielle Piper and Kiernan Green, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.